Amen. Amen. Thanks, Brian. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? You awake? A little bit? Somewhat? Okay, cool. I'm still working on getting there. Um, so we are continuing this really short mini-series. We're doing three weeks on relationships. Last week, Brian kicked us off with parenting for Mother's Day. If you missed that, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that on our app or on our podcast. Next week, Mark Popenhagen, or the Pope as we call him, is preaching on singleness, which I'm really excited for personally because it's something that I don't think the church speaks on enough. So, But this morning, I get to talk to you about marriage. And Brian joked last week, but I don't think it's a joke. He said, you know, I've been married for five years now to my, my wife, Amanda, so I'm clearly an expert on marriage. I know everything that there is to know, and more than anything, I just hope that you can keep up with my wisdom. So, I mean, if you're writing, that might not be fast enough. If you got some, a keyboard or something like that, it might help you keep up. But all joking aside, thank you for laughing at my jokes. <laughs> Sometimes I think I'm funny. Um, but... <laughs> But I'm really excited to be able to preach on marriage. Um, it's, been a, it's been a really, really great five years for man and I. We actually got married here at Rock Creek Church right out back here. Um, there's actually a picture that I want to show you of our wedding day. So that's right out back. We had the great, the, the scenic background of the mountains. Many of you were there, uh, which was really, really special to us. But we've been married for about five years. It's been quite a ride so far. And I know we got a lot more ahead of us. But, you know, we had, we've had moments where, you know, Within a first, the first month of our marriage, I was convinced that she had a brain tumor. So that was fun to go through. Uh, financially, we figured out that there were several moments where we weren't really going to be able to get by. Um, we just had to get by month to month. We've had so many amazing and crazy memories that have happened, and it's been fun. But I want to share it for you, most, more than anything, for those of you who may have been married much longer than we have, just know that, that we're going to look at the Bible and what the Bible has to say about marriage, how God has designed it, because if we trust only in what I have to say, you're not going to get very much. <laughs> so this will be fun because there have been literally thousands of books written on the topic of marriage, and I got 30 minutes to talk to you. So I'm going to do my best. We're going to kind of take some really big, broad brush strokes. So um, I really encourage you to think personally for you, whether you're married, whether uh, potentially you've been divorced, maybe you're single, maybe you're hopeful for married, uh, to get married at some point in life. I just want to encourage you just to think wherever you're at in life, just continue to think, what, what may God be trying to say to me directly this morning? So of those thousands of books, um, there's one in particular that I want to recommend. This is one that Man and I read for our premarital counseling um, as we were going, getting through. It's, it's called The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. And I would, I would unequivocally recommend this book to anybody who wants to know anything about marriage. He gives a lot of practical advice, which is really helpful, but a lot of really rich, in-depth theology for understanding how has God created marriage and how do we wrestle with it today? Because it's obviously not easy. But I want to start this morning, and I'll be quoting this book a handful of times this morning as a heads up too, but I want to start this morning by talking about the way that our world has kind of begun to see marriage and think about it. Because the general view of marriage has changed drastically in recent history, and it's just going to continue to change. It really has. So um, Tim Keller writes this in this book. He says, a new view of marriage emerged from the, 19th, or the 18th and 19th century enlightenment. Instead of finding meaning through self-denial and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. So there's been a big shift in the last couple hundred years. And in other words, marriage has all 
it's become all about me. M E me. It's all about me. And this shows up all over the place in the way that we, we tend to speak about our significant others. I mean, how many of you ever use the word soulmate? Nobody? A bunch of liars? I mean, you could have used it jokingly, right? We, we hear it all the time. Soulmate or the one. I'm looking for the one. It's all throughout our movies and through our television shows. We tend to think about romance in, in our significant others as a soulmate or the one. But biblically speaking, I want to say this. This might shock some of you. That is not a biblical concept. There is no such thing as your perfect soulmate out in the world. God hasn't created the one perfect person for you waiting out there to make you happy. That's not biblical. And in fact, if we really take the whole Bible as a whole, right, we know that we're sinful human beings. We're broken. We carry a lot of baggage. And so marriage, you you stick two broken, sinful people in a relationship for life it doesn't fix your problems, right? We should expect more mess. And for those of us who are married, you know that there's a lot of mess in marriage, right? But this is not a biblical concept. God does not have the one out there waiting for you that you have to find them. The one, I would say, is the person that you commit your life to. The person that you choose to marry and commit your life to, that is now the one for you. And you have to treat it that way. So, there's been this huge shift. And whether we realize it or not, I think subtly it's affected the way that we think. And nowadays, more and more people are even losing faith in marriage altogether. People are saying that it's outdated, that it's oppressive, that we don't need it anymore. Um, I see tons of studies that try to point to the fact that we're not meant to be monogamous, and I think that's kind of crazy, especially in understanding, I mean, the Christian worldview makes sense of this, right? We're sinful, so of course we're not going to naturally go to the things that are good. But most of my life, I've heard this statistic, because uh, a lot of people will point to the divorce rate to say, oh, we don't really need marriage anymore, it doesn't even work. So I've heard this old statistic, raise your hand, if you've, if you've ever heard this, that roughly one in two marriages fail. You ever heard that? Okay. That's wrong. I don't know where that came from or why it is distributed as much as it is, but it's actually not even true, and it's never even been close to being true. It's never even gotten close to 50%. Now, it's much higher than we would want it to be, of course, but it's never gotten to 50%. So we need to stop saying that. And second of all, It's actually fascinating, I love this. The divorce rate is actually on the decline. It's lowering. It is. And for those of you who like to make fun of the millennial generation, sociologists are giving us the credit. They are, right? We're doing some good in the world, okay? So get off our backs. It's my my generation. So why is the divorce rate lowering? There's a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of factors. One of the big reasons is that statistically, less and less people are getting married, and if they are, they're waiting till later in life. So again, thinking about my generation, the millennial generation. Millennials right now are anywhere between the ages of 23 and 38. And right now, only one-third of millennials are married. That is a really small percentage compared to previous generations. So there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is I think that less and less people are getting married, less people are feeling this pressure and this urge of like, well, that's just a part of growing up, that's what I gotta do in this process called life. We've challenged that a little bit, and I think that that in some ways is is really good. You know, for for some people, a lot of people, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but a lot more people are living together without getting married, 
that's a factor as well. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But more than anything, I think that the beautiful aspect of this shift is that we're realizing that marriage is not for everybody. And I think that's biblical. We're built for marriage, but we're never commanded to marry. Do you know that? Jesus never commanded his disciples, his apostles, to get married in order to follow him. It's just not there. In fact, Jesus, more often than not, used language of sacrifice. Give up everything that you have in order to come follow me. The Apostle Paul himself, I'm going to point this out, 1 Corinthians 7 is one of the the most comprehensive chapters in the Bible that talks about marriage. So the Apostle Paul, who wrote more than half of the New Testament, in verses 26 through 28, I'm just going to pull three quick verses. He says this, because of the present crisis, and the crisis is that Jesus died and rose again, and that you know, they're living in the last days, we're living in the last days, right? Because of this present crisis, I think it is best to remain as you are. If you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. But if you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles. And I'm trying to spare you of those problems. It's the Bible for you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I read that, I'm just like, really, Paul? <laughs> if you get married, you're not sinning. <laughs> well, that's a positive outlook on it. <laughs> and I want to spare you of these troubles. Okay, so more than anything, I just want to point that out because, again, we, we tend to romanticize marriage as if it's supposed to be the perfect fix for us. Right? When you're young and dumb and you find someone that you're really attracted to, you can, it's easy to fall into this mindset of, oh, well, that person's just going to make my life better. Like, I just feel amazing with them, so they're just going to fix all my problems, and they're going to make me feel truly happy and ultimately fulfilled. But we cannot put those expectations on other human beings. We just can't. Because in, inadvertently, what we're doing is we're putting expectations on them that they will never be able to fulfill. Ever. And more often than not, I think... If we hold on to that and we try to hold on to those expectations, we either start harboring bitterness or we get in more fights or we want out because the other person isn't fulfilling us, right? And that's not how God designed marriage. So I want to shift now and talk, what, what does the Bible say about marriage? What is marriage in its essence? And I want to give you one word that we're going to kind of come back to a lot the rest of this morning. That one word is covenant. So I don't know if you've ever really heard this word before. If you've spent much time in church, you've probably heard it. We don't really use it very much in in the common English language anymore. But uh, it's extremely important. So more than anything, before we get into it, I want to make sure that you understand that this is important. This word makes all the difference, and it's ultimately God's way of doing marriage. So let's turn to the first marriage in scripture. So if you have your Bibles with you, we've really been encouraging you to bring these with you, your paper copies to write, highlight, engage with it, the actual text. So if you, if you have it with you, please turn and open to Genesis chapter 2, 22 through 25. It's right in the beginning. The first marriage between Adam and Eve. So starting in verse 22, it says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
So there's a few things in this passage in the first marriage that we can pull out. First and foremost, Adam, he's, I mean, I don't think the, the words do much justice. Adam's excited, right? He's like, at last, like bone of my bone. Like there's, there's someone just like me. I don't have to deal with all these stupid animals anymore. He's excited, right? And there's a mutuality here. So marriage is established by God. He designed it. It involves a man and a woman joining together to become one flesh as a covenant. And there's a phrase in here is united to. Some older translations will say cleave. The man will cleave to his wife. And more than anything, the Hebrew word behind this literally means to glue together. It's a permanent sticking uh, union that, that is meant to be permanent. So the first aspect of covenant is that it's meant to be permanent. We become completely united to our spouse, one flesh. And the beauty of this, we'll also talk about this a little bit more later, but Adam and Eve, they were both naked and they felt no shame. This is way more than just physical, right? They're, they're naked, but they're fully exposed. They're fully vulnerable, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and they feel no shame. There's a connection there. There's a vulnerability that's safe in that covenant. But a covenant is essentially a contract that binds two people together. Promises are made. There's responsibilities. Um, Covenants are are really popular all throughout the Old Testament and even ancient culture in general. Oftentimes, you actually see two people, if they're making a covenant together, and again, this is a completely different day and age, they they would basically chop up some animals and split them, and then the two, if they're making a promise, would walk through the middle of them it's kind of weird, I know, but the, the idea is that it would be this imagery of saying, okay, if any of us doesn't follow through with our commitments, may it be to one of us as it is to these animals. Like, there's a severity there. God makes covenants all over the place in the Old Testament with his people. He makes a covenant with Abraham and tells him and promises his, him that he will make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He makes a covenant with King David and says, the throne will never lean or it'll never leave your lineage. And he makes a covenant with us through the person of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, that ultimately he takes care of our end of the bargain. That's the beauty of the new covenant, right? On the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, he was fulfilling our end of the bargain so we could have a perfect new relationship with Christ. It's covenant. It's all over the place. And marriage is a covenant. So if you think about that on one side of the spectrum, if we can treat this as a spectrum, you got covenant over here, On the other side, let's use the word consumer. And again, I want to pull from from this book from Tim Keller. He, He writes this, a consumer relationship lasts only as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you. If another vendor delivers better services or the same services at a better cost, you have no obligation to stay in a relationship to the original vendor. In consumer relationships, it could be said that the individual's needs are more important than the relationship. We live, in a, we live in a consumeristic world, right? We are constantly being sold stuff all the time. So it's, it kind of makes sense that this seeps into our marriages, that we begin to think about our relationships from a consumer mentality where our needs take precedence over the needs of the relationship. Covenant's the opposite. Covenant, it says, no, I'm making this commitment. The relationship is more important than my immediate needs. You see the difference? So too often, we in the West, in this culture, treat marriage as a consumer relationship. And I hate this, and it frustrates me, 
But too often, this old saying is used to justify divorce. Well, they just weren't really the one. Or I married the wrong person. Or they weren't who I married. And hear my heart on this, because I know I'm speaking to a room with, with some divorced folks in here, um, people who have been remarried even, too. My heart is not for you to feel condemned by any means, because we all know, specifically, uh, if we look at Scripture and look at what Jesus preached, right, there is love, forgiveness, hope, redemption completely for you. But we cannot justify divorce. We can't justify it and say, oh, well, it's okay, because, well, you know, it's their fault anyway. They were the wrong person, or they changed, or fill in the blank. Because, again, what we've done is we've put these expectations on them as if they were supposed to fulfill us when only God can. And we crush them under the weight of our expectations. And even if you haven't gone through a divorce, even if you're still married, you've been married a long time, you know, I know this in my own relationship with Manda, that even in these four, five short years, I've had it seep into my mentality, this consumer mindset of, well, if I give this, I should get this back, right? We think about that all the time. We have these set of expectations on our spouse. Well, they should give me this because I need this. They should know that I'm feeling this, so they should take care of me this way. They should enable me to do what I want. We want fulfillment in our spouse, but we can't find it there. So again, we live in this world that's, that's so strongly characterized by consumerism, and that's one of the biggest things I think we need to be aware of, is where have we let this seep into our mindset when, with our marriage? Where have we let this, this come into our lives and have distracted us from the purpose, which is covenant, which says... You know, we say this in the traditional wedding vows. For better or for worse, in sickness and health, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. That's not lovey-dovey, feel-good language. That's commitment covenant language. It says it doesn't matter. I love you so much that I'm going to make this commitment and stick with you until one of us dies. That's covenant. I want to read from Ephesians 5. So 1 Corinthians 7 is one of the, the most comprehensive passages in the Bible about marriage. Ephesians 5 is another really, really good one. This, this is the most extensive instructions that we have for husbands and wives in how they're supposed to interact with each other. So this is still Paul writing. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5. He says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Paul kind of goes off on this tangent about Christ in the church, but then he, he comes back here <laughs> a little bit. It says, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, so I realize I just, I just read a big, big chunk of, of scripture here. But what I want you to hear, a couple things. There's some really big, broad themes throughout this, and people have gotten caught up on the minutia of all these little words. But first and foremost, it starts with verse 21. It says, therefore, submit to one another. Submit to one another. That's absolutely key. In any good marriage, and any good godly marriage, as he has designed it, there's mutuality. That both people submit to the other. It's mutual. It goes hand in hand, right? And yes, Paul does say that the husband is the head of wife, that, head of his wife, but that's not like a CEO type authority or anything like that. How does he define headship? Well, he says, okay, as the head, the husband loves the wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave him, he died. He gave everything he had. Right? So next time, I don't know if any of you actually do this, but next time, men, if you ever want to try to take the Bible and use it to, to get your way in your marriage, you're wrong. <laughs> know that. You're wrong. Because it needs to be done in mutuality and submission, and if anything, you should be giving everything you have for your wife. So we see that the, there's mutuality in submission, Women are told to submit to their husbands and husbands are told to love their wives. And I think if we think about love in this sense that it involves sacrifice, is, is Jesus sacrificed himself? I mean, that's just another way to talk about submission, right? It's mutual. So this isn't some hierarchical structure. But basically what this is demonstrating, what this is giving us a picture for, is that in this kind of covenant relationship in marriage, you do whatever it takes. You fight for your marriage. You fight for your spouse. And the onus here is on husbands. And I think it should be on everybody, but I think specifically I do want to call out the men in this room. Do what it takes for your marriage. I urge you. I know that Again, I'm speaking to a room of people with a ton of different circumstances, a ton of different life situations. I know that there are some people in this room where their marriages are hanging on by a thread. And you don't know what to do. You feel like there's too much hurt, there's too much pain, there's too much bitterness. What would it look like for you to do whatever it takes? So covenant matters. It makes a difference. Some of you may be thinking right now, isn't the divorce rate the same for Christians as it is for non-Christians? How many of you have ever heard that before? It's another popular statistic that's thrown around, that the divorce rate's the same for Christians and non-Christians. Well, let's take a look at it, because it's actually pretty misleading. So we can make a distinction, and sociologists have done this. If we make a distinction between people who call themselves a Christian, but never attend church, and people who call themselves a Christian and attend church regularly. We can make that distinction, right? And we, we all know that attending church isn't the most important thing. It's absolutely important, but it's, it's generally a good, easy, measurable way to say, okay, if you're attending church regularly, you're probably engaging your faith. You're probably trying to live it out. 
if you're not ever attending church, there's probably a good sense that you're just nominal. I mean, you just call yourself a Christian, but you're not doing anything with it. So if we make that distinction, nominal Christians, people that are Christian by name only, they are actually 20% more likely to divorce than the rest of the general public. And there's a lot to be said there. There's a lot, of, a lot of factors that go into that. But that also means the divorce rate for Christians that are actively engaged in church is anywhere from 27 to 50% lower. Depending on their background, their affiliation, and things like that, but it's lower. So it's not the same. Covenant matters because if we have this mentality, if we come into marriage with this covenant mentality and this, this resolve to do things God's way as he has designed it, it works. I mean, it's not 100%. Of course, there's other circumstances. But again, it's better because we have this idea that I'm in this for good. I'm in this for life. And I will say this is one thing that I am absolutely thankful for in my marriage with Amanda. Um, and we were encouraged to do this early on when we were engaged. But we have made a commitment to each other that we're not even going to joke about divorce. We're not going to let that word roll off our lips. Why? Because we're not giving ourselves an out. We're not, we're not giving ourselves an exit strategy. And too often, I mean, I don't know how often this really happens. I'm sure it, it happens plenty, but I see it more in, t- in the TV, television and movies and things like that where people have prenups, right? They get into this marriage, but they're like, okay, here's my big stack and set of conditions that if you don't meet these, I have the ability to get out. That's not marriage. It's not a covenant. There's no love in that. So covenant matters, and marriage matters. More and more I hear people also say it. This is a really popular thing from the millennial generation. Um, But I hear people say, well, I don't need a piece of paper to prove that I love you. Okay, you don't need a piece of paper to feel love. But what's the alternative to making a lifelong commitment? The alternative is... Well, I'll just kind of leave it up to chance. I think I'll be committed. I think I'll like you in 20 years, but who knows? So I think the greatest form of love is a lifelong commitment to say, I will do whatever it takes to make this work. I'll do whatever it takes. So I want to address this real quick, too, because, again, speaking to my generation and just the the shifts that are happening in culture. um, Some more statistics for you. Right now, census data from 2012, so this is a, little, a few years old, from 2012 shows that 7.8 million couples were living together without walking down the aisle first. And that went up from 2.9 million in 1996. It's a very short amount of time to pass. And so we see more and more people are living together. And, and we're taught this, right? I can tell you, first and foremost, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so this seemed totally natural to me too, right? I grew up in this. We see it in television. We see it in our movies. For those of us who want to say that media does not have control over the way we think, here's a perfect example of where it does. Everywhere in the media, we see stories or movies of romance that show the next logical step between dating and engagement is you live together. You give it a test run. You see how it goes. You see if you're compatible. I thought that probably until I was, I think I was 19. 
I became a Christian around 14, 15. I thought that until I was 19, until someone challenged me on that. And they're like, what are you talking about, dude? I'm like, actually, I've never even thought about it. So we're taught this. It's, it's in our culture. It's everywhere. And again, when I, I'm not saying that you're doomed if you're living together, but I do want to say that I don't think that's God's way. That's not covenant. You're trying to enjoy the benefits without giving a full commitment. And a big reason for that, if you think about it this way, is marriage, I believe, is the only safe context for sex. It's the only safe context. Sex is great. It's fun. Right? Otherwise, people wouldn't do it. (laughs) Makes sense. But marriage, God designed marriage to be the context for sex because it's the only safe place. Think back to Adam and Eve, right? They were naked. They were unashamed. It was safe. They were completely vulnerable. And I think it takes marriage, it takes a lifelong commitment to be able to be truly and fully vulnerable. If I know that my significant other has an out, if they could leave me whenever they wanted to, do you think I'm going to share the deepest hurts, pains, struggles of mine? No. And sex is way more than just the physical act, right? It's, it's wrapped up in emotion, in spirituality. There's so much more to that than meets the eye. But it, sex is inc- it's incredibly vulnerable. And so, so marriage is the only safe context for that because in that commitment, because Manda and I know that we are in this for life, we both feel more courage to talk about our crap, to talk about our sin, to talk about our struggles, to, to go through life together and be completely and wholly vulnerable. Now, I'm not saying that it's perfect, right? Every marriage is, I mean, we're still wrestling with sin. Adam and Eve, when they found out um, when they ate the fruit and they discovered good and evil and all this other stuff, what, they immediately covered up and tried to back away because there was shame involved. But the way God designed marriage is that is the context where we can be truly, wholly vulnerable with our significant other. So it is so important when we think about our relationships. All right. I've talked a lot. Um, I want to finish out with this question, just what do we do? So wherever you're at, whatever you've been thinking about this whole time, and this could be anybody, like not, I'm not just talking to the married couples in the room. You know, if you're single, if you're dating, if you're engaged, if, you've, if you're divorced, if you're remarried, if you're single, you know, wherever you're at in life, think about what, is, what does this mean for me? What do we do? First and foremost, I want to encourage you, make a resolution, re- resolve to do marriage God's way, wherever you're at. Draw a line in the sand and say, you know what? No, I'm going to stay put here. I'm going to do this God's way, whatever that means. You may not know the, the full extent of what that means. But if you do marriage God's way, if you do life God's way in general, then it's good. It may not be easy, but it's good because God designed us. He designed marriage. He wants us to have good lives. He wants us to have good marriages. And the world needs more godly marriages. Right? So resolve to do it God's way, whatever that looks like. So wherever you're at. So, for example, if you're living together right now, 
Again, no condemnation because God's love isn't dependent on your actions. But if you're living together, to do it God's way, I'd encourage you to find a different living situation. Do what it takes to be obedient to God. If you're married, wherever you're at, even if you have a good marriage, figure out, okay, what's it going to take for this to be a great marriage? What steps do I need to take to obey God, to find my fulfillment solely in Him? And for a lot of us, this is going to involve the second one. The second one is reframe your thinking. Because again, we need, to, we need to constantly challenge the way that we think, the way that the world thinks. We need to constantly challenge it because we can inadvertently accept ways of thinking without even realizing it. So again, thinking about this whole covenant versus consumer mentality, I know for a fact that I've let some consumer mentality seep into the way that I treat my wife. I know that. And I know it has for you too. We live in a world that is completely governed by consumerism. So take some time to reframe your thinking. Ask yourself, where have you been expecting your spouse to make you happy or to fulfill you? What expectations have you put on them that are unrealistic, that really belong to God himself? Ask yourself, have you harbored any bitterness toward your spouse? because they haven't fulfilled you, or because it wasn't what you expected, because they've changed over time? Have you harbored any bitterness that doesn't belong? Number three, seek counsel. And this is probably the most important one. Seek counsel wherever you're at. Again, even if you have a good marriage and you want a great marriage, find people to talk to. Go find people that are older than you, that have better marriages than you. Sit down with them and ask them how they do it. Ask them what works for them. Ask them if they have any advice. Ask them how they've worked with God in their marriage. Seek counsel, whatever that looks like. One thing I'm so unbelievably thankful for is that when Amanda and I did our premarital counseling, we, we took this seriously and um, through the encouragement of, of, of the pastor at the time. But we actually sought out the repentings, Billy and Lisa. Billy's playing guitar right over here. <laughs> um, and they walked with us for several weeks. We read a book that was silly. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, it, was, it wasn't a very good book. I wouldn't recommend that one. <laughs> Again, a lot of books have been written. <laughs> but what we got more out of that time was just getting to watch them and watch their relationship. And they gave us insight. They gave us things to think about. We got to do that a little bit with the Arnett's too. Mark and Alicia, we sat down with them for a couple nights for dinner. And this is also very special for me because they're, they're still here. Like, we're all part of the same body still. Um, but seek counsel. And for some of you, that, that really does mean professional counseling. Again, I want to call out the men in the room because this isn't, this isn't always the case. But generally speaking, men tend to be a lot more stubborn about going to counseling. Suck it up. Seriously. You don't want to go sit in a room and talk to someone for an hour? Big whoop. Do what it takes. Jesus gave his life for the church. The least you can do is give up an hour a week. Do what it takes. Seek counsel. And another thing I want to give you just because it's been so important for Amanda and I to remember is stop fighting your spouse and start fighting with your spouse. Your spouse is not the enemy. 
We have an enemy. Spiritual warfare in general, we, we know, Scripture tells us that we have an enemy. And one of the biggest things that he wants to attack is our marriages. He wants to attack us and he wants us to make us think that our spouse is our enemy. That because they don't give us what we want, that they're the problem. We need to start realizing that the problems that we have in marriage, we all have problems, right? No one here has a perfect marriage. No one here has a perfect life. The problems are not with our spouse. They exist somewhere else. Maybe it's a communication problem. Maybe it's a set of expectations, but whatever it is, our spouse needs to be our teammate that we fight with, fight alongside. And the last thing that I want to just leave you with is the beauty of all of this, remember back to that Ephesians 5 passage. Paul just keeps going tangent after tangent after tangent on Christ's relationship with the church. God designed marriage to be this grand analogy for his love for us, for the gospel. That's what marriage was intended to be. It's supposed to be a tangible image here on earth that God loves us and he's committed to us regardless of how we act, regardless of the sin that we've committed, regardless of our past, that Christ died for us anyway. So marriage doesn't exist just for our own self-gratification, our happiness, our fulfillment, right? Of course it's beautiful and, and there's a lot of joy and richness that comes from that, but it's all about God. Everything is about God. Marriage is about God. Being single, living a single life is about God. So I want to leave you with that. Realize that for the married couples in the room, for people that are aspiring to to be married, for those of you who have gone through the worst of broken marriages and divorce, or maybe you've gone through remarriages, wherever you're at, we need to remember that that was the intention, is that it's an image of God's love for us. And if we're going to seek to do it God's way, That's what our marriage needs to be. It needs to be a light to the world. It needs to be a glimpse of hope. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. I thank you that you love broken and messed up people like us. That you've committed yourself to us regardless. And I thank you that you've given us the gift of marriage not only for our our own joy and and our own ability to be vulnerable and have companionship, but I thank you that that you've given it a, a greater purpose and a higher purpose to show the world the truth of your love. So I pray that you would help us wherever we're at as Rock Creek Church. Would you help us to take steps in the right direction to do things your way? Help us to find help if we need it. Help us to, to suck it up and and ask for people to be a part of our lives, to share the things that we've been holding too tightly. And more than anything, Jesus, I pray that in all of it, you would help us to love you more and more, find our fulfillment and our satisfaction in you and you alone. And stop putting it elsewhere, stop putting it in people. in your name, Jesus. Amen.